country live in a way that kings of old would not imagine you could live. The things that are available to you, the way that you live. And hopefully what you've been picking up as we do in this series is that generosity and being generous has nothing to do with how much you have. The generosity is an issue of the heart and, uh, and it's a, a matter of perspective. And, and even last week, went in painstaking detail looking at what does the Bible teach us about how we are generous if we say that we take our life with Jesus seriously. If we say that we're people that follow God, how should we be generous? And so if you didn't get a chance, especially last week, I would really highly recommend you listen. Definitely if you would say you were a follower of Jesus. So as we're finishing uh, this series tonight, uh, I want to do something that's a little bit different than what we might do when we get together for church. So, uh, you know, if this doesn't go well, I'll be gone. So you can just look forward to it being better. Uh, I, I want to I read a passage of scripture. It's from Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. What I want to do tonight that would be a little bit different is I want to show you uh, a, a TED Talk. I don't know how many, how many of you have seen TED Talks before. Yeah, okay. So a lot of you have. Some of you haven't. If you've not seen a TED Talk, be excited. You'll see one tonight. Um, and I really do think that this, like, strange little outlet of talks uh, is really a prophetic voice in our culture right now. Um, kind of came out of the IT and the science world, trying to talk about sociological and technological advancements, things that are happening, trying to speak to popular culture about what scientists are learning, um, about what's happening in the world. I, I find them to be really interesting, and sometimes they're, they're just terrible. Uh, it's a lot like sermons. So anyway, uh, and... I love it, I love it, I love it. When I watch the scientific community come all the way around to realize something that the scriptures have been teaching us for thousands of years is true. That coming through another door completely, not from the door of faith, not from the door of traditions that have been passed down through generations, scientists have this moment of realization as they observe the world as it really is. And they realize, wait a minute, it might be that what people of faith, specifically people who have faith in Jesus have been saying for thousands of years, is actually true. It isn't just like a helpful thought to get along your life, but it's true. And it's true down to the very molecules of their being and true in the way that they interact and relate with one another. I want us to think about this tonight because the truth is generosity and learning to be generous with your time, your energy, your money, your relationships 
is entirely dependent on how grateful you really are. Generous people are grateful people. They're people who, no matter what's happening around them, they find a way to be grateful people. And psychology and sociology is showing us that this is just true of what it means to live a life of contentment and joy. So I want to share this TED Talk, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to look at this passage again that, again, was written thousands of years ago that now scientists are saying is a brand new epiphany. So uh, let's watch this TED Talk, and I'm going to come up and apply it to how the scriptures work together. When I was seven years old and my sister was just five years old, we were playing on top of a bunk bed. I was two years older than my sister at the time. I mean, I'm two years older than her now, but at the, <laughs> at the time that meant she had to do everything that I wanted to do and I wanted to play war. So we were up on top of our bunk beds and on one side of the bunk bed, I had put out all my GI Joe soldiers and weaponry. And on the other side were all my sisters, Milo's and ponies and ready for a cavalry charge. There are differing accounts of what actually happened that afternoon, but since my sister is not here with us today, um, let me tell you the true story. <laughs> Which is my sister is a little bit on the clumsy side, and somehow, without any help or push from her older brother at all, suddenly Amy disappeared off of the top of the bunk bed and landed with this crash on the floor. And I nervously peered over the side of the bed to see what had befallen my fallen sister and saw that she had landed painfully on her hands and knees on all fours on the ground. I was nervous because my parents had charged me with making sure that my sister and I played as safely and as quietly as possible. And seeing as how I had accidentally broken Amy's arm just one week before, <laughs> heroically pushing her out of the way of an oncoming imaginary sniper bullet, <laughs> for which I have yet to be thanked. I was trying as hard as I could she didn't even see it coming. I was trying as hard as I could to be on my best behavior, and I saw my sister's faces wail of pain and suffering and surprise, threatening to erupt from her mouth and threatening to wake my parents from the long winter's nap for which they had settled. So I did the only thing my little frantic seven-year-old brain could think to do to avert this tragedy. If you have children, you've seen this hundreds of times before. I said, Amy, Amy, wait, don't cry, don't cry. Did you see how you landed? No human lands on all fours like that. Amy, I think this means you're a unicorn. Now that was cheating because there's nothing in the world my sister would want more than not to be Amy the hurt five-year-old little sister, but Amy the special unicorn. Of course, this was an option that was open to her brain at no point in the past. And you could see on my poor, manipulated sister's face conflict. <laughs> As her little brain attempted to devote resources to feeling the pain and suffering surprise she just experienced, or contemplating her newfound identity as a unicorn. And the latter one out. Instead of crying, instead of ceasing our play, instead of waking my parents with all the negative consequences that would have ensued for me, instead a smile spread across her face and she scrambled right back up onto the bunk bed with all the grace of a baby unicorn. <laughs> with one broken leg. What we stumbled across 
at this tender age, which is five and seven, we had no idea at the time, was something that was going to be at the vanguard of a scientific revolution occurring two decades later in the way that we look at the human brain. What we had stumbled across is something called positive psychology, which is the reason that I'm here today and the reason that I wake up every morning. When I first started talking about this research outside of academia, out with companies and schools, the very first thing they said to never do is to start your talk with a graph. The very first thing I wanted to do is start my talk with a graph. This graph looks boring, but this graph is the reason that I get excited and wake up every morning. And this graph doesn't even mean anything. It's fake data. What we found is... If I got this data back studying you here in the room, I would be thrilled because there's very clearly a trend that's going on there, and that means that I can get published, which is all that really matters. The fact that there's one weird red dot that's up above the curve, there's one weird in the room, you know who you are, I saw you earlier. That's no problem. That's no problem, as most of you know, because I can just delete that dot. <laughs> I can delete that dot because that's clearly a measurement error, and we know that's a measurement error because it's messing up my data. <laughs> so one of the very first things that we teach people in economics and statistics and business and psychology courses is how, in a statistically valid way, do we eliminate the weirdos? How do we eliminate the outliers? <laughs> so that we can find the line of best fit, which is fantastic if I'm trying to find out how many Advil the average person should be taking, too. But if I'm interested in potential, if I'm interested in your potential or for happiness or productivity or energy or creativity, what we're doing is we're creating the cult of the average with science. If I ask a question like, how fast can a child learn how to read in a classroom? Scientists change the answer to, how fast does the average child learn how to read in that classroom? And then we tailor the class right towards the average. Now, if you fall below the average on this curve, then psychologists get thrilled because that means you're either depressed or you have a disorder or hopefully both. <laughs> We're hoping for both because our business model is that if you come into a therapy session with one problem, we want to make sure you leave knowing you have 10. So you'll keep coming back over and over again. We'll go back into your childhood if necessary, but eventually what we want to do is to make you normal again. But normal is merely average. And what I posit and what positive psychology posits is that if we study what is merely average, we will remain merely average. That instead of deleting those positive outliers, what I intentionally do is come into a population like this one and says, why? Why is it that some of you are so high above the curve in terms of your intellectual ability, athletic ability, musical ability, creativity, energy levels, your resiliency in the face of challenge, your sense of humor? Whatever it is, instead of deleting you, what I want to do is study you. Because maybe we can glean information, not just how to move people up to the average, but how we can move the entire average up at our companies and schools worldwide. The reason this graph is important to me is when I turn on the news, it seems like the majority of the information is not positive. In fact, it's negative. Most of it's about murder, corruption, diseases, natural disasters, and very quickly, my brain starts to think that's the accurate ratio of negative to positive in the world. What that's doing is creating something called the medical school syndrome, which if you know people who have been to medical school during the first year of medical training, as you read through a list of all the symptoms and diseases that could happen, suddenly you realize you have all of them. I have a brother-in-law named Bobo, which is a whole other story. Bobo <laughs> married Amy the Unicorn. Bobo called me on the phone <laughs> from Yale Medical School. From Yale Medical School, and Bobo said, Sean, I have leprosy, <laughs> which even at Yale is extraordinarily rare. But I had no idea how to console poor Bobo because he had just gotten over an entire week of menopause. See, what we're finding is it's not necessarily the reality that shapes us, but the lens through which your brain views the world that shapes your reality. And if we can change the lens, not only can we change your happiness, we can change every single educational and business outcome at the same time. When I applied to Harvard, I applied on a dare. I didn't expect to get in, and my family had no money for college. When I got a military scholarship two weeks later, they allowed me to go. Suddenly, something that wasn't even a possibility became a reality. 
when I went there, I assumed everyone else would see it as a privilege as well, that they'd be excited to be there. Even if you're in a classroom full of people smarter than you, you'd be happy just to be in that classroom, which is what I felt. But what I found there is while some people experienced that, when I graduated after my four years and then spent the next eight years living in the dorms with the students, Harvard asked me to, I um, wasn't that guy. But what <laughs> happened, I was an officer of Harvard to counsel students through the difficult four years, and what I found in my research and my teaching is that these students, no matter how happy they were with their original success of getting into the school, two weeks later, their brains were focused not on the privilege of being there, nor on their philosophy or their physics. Their brain was focused on the competition, the workload, the hassles, the stresses, the complaints. When I first went in there, I walked into the freshman dining hall, which is where my friends from Waco, Texas, which is where I grew up, I know some of you have heard of it. Um, when I when they come to visit me, they look around, they say, this freshman dining hall looks like something out of Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, which it does. <laughs> this is Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, and that's Harvard. And when they see this, they say, Sean, why do you waste your time studying happiness at Harvard? Seriously, what does a Harvard student possibly have to be unhappy about? Embedded within that question is the key to understanding the science of happiness. Because what that question assumes is that our ex external world is predictive of our happiness levels. When in reality, if I know everything about your external world, I can only predict 10% of your long-term happiness. 90% of your long-term happiness is predicted not by the external world, but by your, the way your brain processes the world. And if we change it, if we change our formula for happiness and success, what we can do is change the way that we can then affect reality. What we found is that only 25% of job successes are predicted by IQ. 75% of job successes are predicted by your optimism levels, your social support, and your ability to see stress as a challenge instead of as a threat. I talked to a boarding school up in New England, probably the most prestigious boarding school, and they said, we already know that. So every year, instead of just teaching our students, we also have a wellness week, and we're so excited. Monday night, we have the world's leading expert coming in to speak about adolescent depression. Tuesday night is school violence and bullying. Wednesday night, <laughs> Wednesday night's eating disorders, Thursday night is illicit drug use, and Friday night we're trying to decide between risky sex or happiness. <laughs> I said that's most people's Friday nights. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm glad you liked, but they did not like that at all. Silence on the phone. And into the silence, I said, I'd be happy to speak at your school, but just so you know, that's not a wellness week, that's a sickness week. What you've done is you've outlined all the negative things that can happen, but not talked about the positive. The absence of disease is not health. Here's how we get to health. We need to reverse the formula for happiness and success. In the past three years, I've traveled to 45 different countries, working with schools and companies in the midst of an economic downturn. And what I found is that most companies and schools follow a formula for success, which is this. If I work harder, I'll be more successful. And if I'm more successful, then I'll be happier. That undergirds most of our parenting styles, our managing styles, the way that we motivate our behavior, and the problem is it's scientifically broken and backwards for two reasons. First, every time your brain has a success, you just change the goalpost of what success looked like. You got good grades, now you have to get better grades. You got into a good school, now you have to get a better school. You got a good job, now you have to get a better job. You hit your sales target, we're gonna change your sales target. And if happiness is on the opposite side of success, your brain never gets there. What we've done is we've pushed happiness over the cognitive horizon as a society. And that's because we think we have to be success successful, then we'll be happier. But the real problem is our brains work in the opposite order. If you can raise somebody's level of positivity in the present, then their brain experiences what we now call a happiness advantage, which is your brain at positive performs significantly better than it does at negative neutral stress. Your intelligence rises, your creativity rises, your energy levels rise. In fact, what we found is that every single business outcome improves. Your brain at positive is 31% more productive than it, your brain at negative neutral or stress. 
You're 37% better at sales. Doctors are 19% faster, more accurate at coming up with the correct diagnosis when positive instead of negative neutral or stressed, which means we can reverse the formula. If we can find a way of becoming positive in the present, then our brains work even more successfully as we're able to work harder, faster, and more intelligently. What we need to be able to do is to reverse this formula so we can start to see what our brains are actually capable of. Because dopamine, which floods into your system when you're positive, has, has two functions. Not only does it make you happier, it turns on all the learning centers in your brain, allowing you to adapt to the world in a different way. We found that there are ways that you can train your brain to be able to become more positive. In just a two minute span of time, done for 21 days in a row, we can actually rewire your brain, allowing your brain to actually work more optimistically and more successfully. We've done these things in research now in every single company that I've worked with, getting them to write down three new things that they're grateful for for 21 days in a row, three new things each day, and at the end of that, their brain starts to retain a pattern of scanning the world not for the negative, but for the positive first. Journaling about one positive experience you've had over the past 24 hours allows your brain to relive it. Exercise teaches your brain that your behavior matters. We find that meditation allows your brain to get over the cultural ADHD that we've been creating by trying to do multiple tasks at once. It allows our brains to focus on the task at hand. And finally, random acts of kindness or conscious acts of kindness. We get people when they open up their inbox to write one positive email, praising or thanking somebody in their social support network. And by doing these activities and by training your brain, just like we train our bodies, what we found is we could reverse the formula for happiness and success. And in doing so, not only create ripples of positivity, but create a real revolution. Thank you very much. With that in mind, will you bear with me as I reread the text I just read to you? With everything you just heard in mind, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from a jail cell awaiting execution. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The Apostle Paul says what a Harvard scientist says, which is simply this. Regardless of what is happening, you can choose to be grateful. That gratitude is not birthed within you by the circumstances of your life, but gratitude is a choice that you scan the horizon looking for that which is beautiful and lovely and true. And you set your mind upon that and watch what God can do with it. Our temptation is to do exactly what he just said in this video, which is to make Paul an outlier. 
uh, for any of you who've been raised in church. There can be this tendency, you know, when you go to the Bible, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's what the Bible people say. No, this is what the Apostle Paul says as he's sitting in prison. Uh, he looks out and says, you have a choice. You can make a choice. And I don't know of a, of a, a message that's more relevant to us in modern-day America where about every convenience that we could ever want is availed to us, and yet people are more anxious and stressed and fearful than ever. And you and I have something aligned against us, which Paul did not have aligned against him, which is we have a 24-hour media cycle which will bring right to your device in your hand the worst possible things that are happening on the planet within seconds of it happening. I mean, have you ever considered what is the emotional cost of just taking in continual, never-ending tragedy? There's never, like, news bulletins for great things, unless it's the Ohio State University winning. <laughs> it, it happened again. Anyway, so, uh, you know, th there's, the, it does, you know there, there's things that these devices do that help us, but, man, there's some things that are, frankly, assaulting us psychologically. And you have to be some kind of a miracle worker to manage the amount of things that are coming at you, the level of discipline that you have to exercise to not just allow this kind of pain to assault you at all times. Uh, if you watch television at all in the last few days, if you watch it at all, billions of dollars are arrayed against you. People in boardrooms are thinking about how to convince you that you are miserable so that you will buy their junk. Did it happen to you? Did, did anyone do the Black Friday insanity so you go save $8 chasing, <laughs> banging your way through some crowd? You know, you know, the pandemonium of our culture and the way that commercials are aligned to disrupt you psychologically, to convince you that you have a miserable existence you poor person do you still have that phone really are you still driving that have you seen your countertops have you seen your refrigerator did you know there's a refrigerator that you can double tap the door and you can see through it what if you double tap it again it turns into a whiteboard with your finger, you can write on this screen and it will email you your grocery list. How have we lived without this? <laughs> what, what, what a terrible existence we've endured to this point. Right? And, you, and, you, and, and, and this just keeps happening. I am, not, I, listen, hear my confession. Okay? Just, <laughs> try not to judge me too harshly. Just, just yesterday, okay, you know, there, you know, I'm thinking, I got to look at some of these Black Friday things. Maybe there's something out there I want, you know, and, I, and I'm, if you manage to avoid online shopping at all, you are a stronger man or woman than me. I just thought, I got to look, you know, you can save some money, right? So I look at this thing, and right there listed is like an electric scooter. And I had convinced myself that this would help me. You can go 20 miles an hour. 
It was $300 off, people. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and you're saving the environment. You know, the gas and the... Anyway, so, so the, the point... <laughs> some of you are like, that's really weird. Okay, you're weird too. What's your thing, right? Like the shoes, the hat, the thing. I don't know what it is. Uh, the going on some kind of trip that you're convinced will rejuvenate you forever. What you fix your mind on will push your heart around. That's exactly what he says. And listen, hear, hear me. If psychologists are telling us that by convincing someone they're a baby unicorn, their life is better, okay, like as a child, how much more then for those of us that know that there's a God that made you he put breath in your body he designed every single cell and that same God in the midst of a broken horrific world was wrapped in flesh he demonstrated what life could look like to a watching crowd and was prepared to have nails driven into his hands and a spear driven in his side, he bled out, he died in our place. And he's alive. And he sends his spirit because he's near. How much more for us do we have a choice to always rejoice, to always be grateful? And what I love about the passage is this is not some idyllic setting that Paul's writing us from where you go, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul. Paul's like, really? I'm in jail. I'm about to die. They're going to chop my head right off my body. But I choose to rejoice because of who the Lord is and what he's given me. Now listen, I, I just want to be as clear as I can be here. I know that this is a countercultural message. Even when they say it from Harvard, because we have been fed a steady diet now for 20, 30 years that your emotions are who you are. And I would like to just be as clear as I can be to say the scriptures tell you something different than that. The people of God for generations come to you and say, listen, your emotions can lie to you. To quote Dallas Willard, he says it this directly, he says that emotions make terrible masters but great slaves. You do not need to let your heart push you around. And you can choose where you put your mind and you have a choice to be grateful. You have a choice to fight the wave of entitlement that surrounds us culturally say, no, I choose to be thankful. I choose to ask God to give me the peace that I need because as he just said in that video, there's always a never-ending next thing. There's always another thing that I'm convinced I need in order to feel different and the horizon line just continues to push out. You have right now available to you the peace of God right now you have available to you the grace 
of God that can truly make you thank you, thankful. So I've already done uh, a couple weird things today. Uh, let, let's try something else weird. Because I believe that uh, the scriptures teach this, but we see it throughout church history, and I've experienced it many times with brothers and sisters who love Jesus, that there's something powerful about testifying and testimony. In a court of law, when you want to make a case in front of a jury, you have people come up and they give testimony so that they'll persuade you of a person's guilt or innocence, right? I mean, that's, that's the deal. And, and somehow that testimony uh, helps with decision-making. Because right now as I'm talking in this room, there's somebody in this room right now going, I don't know, things are pretty bad for me. You're saying I can choose gratitude in the midst of what's painful? Yeah, I, I'm saying that, Harvard's saying that, and the Bible's saying that. So, I don't know, pick one of those. Uh, I go with the Bible, but, you know, choose one of those. And, 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 and I think there's something powerful, though, about having testimony in the room. And so, what, I, what I'd love to do, and you still have your mic with you, right? You have your mic, it's right here. Preston, you want to help me? I want to create an opportunity where, where a few of you might share right now, tonight, and this is what I want you to share on. If you have something to be grateful for, and you are grateful, maybe even in the midst of some things that have been really difficult. I don't want you to preach a sermon. Uh, don't, don't open, you know, everyone open your Bibles to Mark 4. No, just, just I just want you to speak for you, short and sweet. Uh, tell me something you're grateful for that you're present to, that especially if you believe it's something that God has entrusted to you. Um, I, I want to allow somebody to do that. Who wants to do that? Who wants something they're grateful for? Right now. Yeah. Come on, brother. What are you grateful for? And say your name, too. Say it one more time. Say it loud. I'm grateful to be healthy and have food each day. Amen. I know your story, brother, so I know. <laughs> Oof, that messes with me. Who else? It's hard to turn the spigot on, isn't it? So you're like, I don't know. I'm pretty upset, really. What do you, say your name and what you're grateful for. Hello, uh, I'm Brother Joseph Delgado, and I am grateful that um, through the midst of the storms and the, the trials that, that we all have, I'm grateful that God chose me and um, that he, uh, he carries me, he carries us when, um, when we're not able, when we're weak, he's strong, and I'm just grateful that he loves me that much grateful that he loves all of us that much and uh, some of you know what I'm what my family's going through and I just um, I'm grateful for the church here and um, you know everybody here that that knows me hmm. um, I just want to say thank you and those who I don't know I'd love to get to know you guys hmm. and um, I just I'm grateful for this this church and grateful to be a child of God amen amen thank you Somebody else, maybe one or two more, all the way here in the front. Oh, and over there. Oh, I'll come. I'll come around. 
Okay, take a number. I'm Mary. I thought I'd take the softball and be grateful for a healthy two-week-old baby and maternity leave and a great community around me supporting me. Amen. That's something to be grateful for. Be grateful for sleep. <laughs> Someday. Uh, my name is Matthew Johnson. I'm grateful for uh, family this Thanksgiving. Uh, it just my story is kind of an interesting one, but I was pretty estranged from my family for quite a while, long time. Uh, not really spending holidays or anything like that. And this holiday, I spent it with my uh, my family on my mom's side and my grandfather actually asked me to say grace over the entire meal. And so I'm really grateful wow. for that. Wow, what a gift. Thank you. How about one more? Who wants it? Who wants it? Um, I'm Woody. Nice to meet you. And I am very grateful for my wife. Uh, say more about that. You don't get to give it back. Say more about that. <laughs> well, she's... Um, She's, uh, I think, um, she is an amazing woman of God. Mm. She uh, loves our kids. She loves your kids. She uh, has pushed me further than anyone ever could. Uh, and I have grown much more than I ever would without her. Mm. She points out the best and worst in me and accepts me and loves me for it. So. Amen. Good job. <laughs> that was pretty fun, huh? <laughs> I really love, and listen, I, I think it is the simple things. I love the way you said that, take the softball. I don't, I don't know, man. I think there's something to that. I, I can remember, and I'll, and I'll finish with this, I can remember when I moved here uh, from Columbus, Ohio, home of the Ohio State University. <laughs> they won't, they won't, they, they happened, they had a game, and anyway, so, <laughs> picked to lose in our own stadium. Anyway, so, uh, that's where I'm from, and I'd moved here, and uh, I was driving along the front range, sunny day, beautiful day, looking at the mountains. And I remember in my heart just driving and saying, oh, God, thank you so much. The mountains, the sunshine, it's so beautiful here. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to be here. And, uh, you know, not in Ohio where it's flat and it rains and it's cloudy perpetually. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you rescued me from the Midwest. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just saying this. And I'm telling you, I felt so clearly the Lord speak to me. Driving along, I felt the Lord say, man, thank you for thanking me. You know, I, I made those mountains. I made this. And I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it, and I'm glad it's beautiful for you. And you know, Jay, my light and my glory was shining on you just as much in Ohio. Just couldn't see it. My grace is available to you no matter what, no matter where you are, in the deepest hole you live in. I'm with you, and you have much to be grateful for. 
and it was an encouragement and kind of a challenge at the same time. You know, it was kind of, they both came at the same time, and I, and I so appreciate that. You know, our brother back here, the way you said that, you said, you know, I'm in the storms, and God is faithful to me. I love that about the text. I love that the Bible tells the truth about how messed up and broken the world is. And yet, at the same time, says there is so much to be grateful for. We can always choose the life and the freedom that's offered in Jesus. And then, listen, we still got to go deal with the stuff we got to deal with, don't we? We still go to the same Thanksgiving meal, don't we? <laughs> we still manage the same things at where we work. We still manage the same things in our budget, but we come different because we come from a place of gratitude and hope not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And maybe this evening there might even be one or two of you in the room that says, I've never said yes to Jesus. I've never given my whole life to Jesus. Here's the great news. You just do that. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to perform. God made a way for you in Jesus. But for those of us that already know and follow Jesus, may this have that, I hope this has that same feel to you. Like, oh, be grateful and always be grateful. In those areas that you don't want to be grateful, choose to be and choose to scan the horizon to find that which you can celebrate. By the way, you don't need a mic or a room to do this. You can live this way. Now, why don't we stand together?